Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome back home to Calvary Chapel. I know we missed our Wednesday study, but I have to just uh, tell you, praise God, we had a wonderful vacation Bible school this year. We had a good turnout of children, and that was really a blessing for our second year doing it, you know, in this building. It was uh, our second year, I think, in general. Um, we had a great turnout, and three children uh, gave their hearts to Jesus Christ this week. So, yeah, praise God. It was a real blessing to, because uh, it was heartfelt, too. It wasn't, you know, provoke. It was genuine, you know, how do I do that? You know, it was just so sweet to see, uh, to see children and just want to come to the Savior, just want to come to their Lord. You know, recognizing that. I thank you again to all the volunteers, all of you that helped volunteer, uh, 50 or more people here throughout the week at different times doing all different kinds of things. And uh, thank you, every one of you, you know, that was able to be part of this. Um, uh, I can say we are eternally grateful. And we mean eternally because it's kingdom work. And so we thank you for that. That reminds me, uh, please mark your calendars if you didn't already in your bulletins, September 8th. Uh, right after second service, shortly thereafter, at 2 p.m., we'll be having our baptism picnic. We do it every year. We're going to be having it here this year. Usually we do it at different parks. But we, I, I believe the Lord's uh, really has this community on my heart. And to have it here, we will be a witness to the community around us. And so um, if you have not been baptized yet, um, you know the, the commission for baptism um, it wasn't a, an elective. It's a required course. You know, <laughs> it's uh, um, it's important. And you know, I, I say that in light because I know we just had three children get saved as well. Um, you know, uh, my son Joshua is going to be baptized this year, so uh, I'm excited about that as well. As little Joshua uh, comes forward, each one of our children has now been baptized with Joshua. Um, so. Uh, praise God. And so I know your children and, and also some of you may not have been baptized. So if you haven't, I'd ask you to stop at the, the church desk or the office there. We have a booklet that I wrote that basically goes through baptism um, and takes scripture and puts it there in ways that you can understand what water baptism is compared to the, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what are the differences. And um, we set up the baptistry right outside. We're going to have a, a time afterwards where it's it goes back to our roots in Calvary Chapel. You know, we have a guitar that comes out. Get a bunch of hippies, man. You bring some food. And we just love Jesus. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. So we're going to have our baptism. Those that want to come forward will be baptized. I pray that the neighbors see the signs. Maybe some of them have not been baptized. They'll come out and see that. Last year, we had like 21 people get baptized. It was awesome. So I'm praying the Lord does that. And then... Um, and then I'm also praying that our neighbors join us. You know, we'll have a little bounce house after. We'll have some uh, talk to Aaron and Bertie about setting up the, the line, you know, like with the, I don't, slack line, I think they call it or something like that. So we're going to have a time afterwards. We're going to have a little uh, uh, petting farm. Why? Because we want our neighbors to see that loving Jesus is a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot of fun to, to worship the king. So again, mark your calendar September 8th at 2 p.m. You're welcome to stay right through or you're welcome to go home and change and come back. Uh, we'll be providing the, the hamburgers, the hot dogs. If you'd like to bring a side dish to pass, if the Lord puts something special on your heart that you make in your family that's like, you know, because this is a family gathering, right? So bring something that, uh, you know, is special to your family. Bring it and share it with your family. So, um, yeah, bacon. You can never have enough bacon. Uh, I also want to say, you know, Lisa was uh, extremely blessed by the ladies' turnout um, yesterday for the study and breakfast. Uh, such a blessing to see the ladies. We were getting everything set back in order because yesterday was also a volunteer day, getting everything from BBS put back in order and getting the classrooms ready upstairs because we have our first open house Monday at 5 p.m., which all you are welcome to come to. We invite you. Come see the classrooms and what the Lord's done. It's through your prayers, right? It's also through your support and giving. I mean, see what God is doing. You, you can't miss... Uh, the hand of God moving in this. Um, so I, I invite you to come out uh, tomorrow at 5 p.m. But um, it, it, it's awesome to see uh, these ladies come out and study the word to be, you know, just literally. And so guys, look, not that it's a competition. Guys, I'm looking at you guys. Next Saturday, 3 p.m. Huh? Or sorry, 9 a.m. Pardon me. Thank you for correcting me. Next Saturday, 9 a.m. Right? Huh, guys? Every one of you. Might still be here. 
You might still be here at three. Usually you're done by, a, by an hour, hour and a half. But, uh, but as the Lord leads, it could be 3 p.m., as Aaron said. But uh, come on out. I want to see all you guys. Every, I want to see every single guy from this church come out. I want you to, to, to really, I mean, press in. We're in the last days. We're in the last days. Press into the Lord. Press into the Word of God. Get fed. Get equipped. Be prayed up. You don't know when Jesus is coming. We need to be ready. We need our spiritual armor. Guys, we got to stick together. And ladies, next, the one next one for the ladies, get your butts here, ladies. All right? I'm, I'm not being shy about it anymore, all right? Let's, it, look, we're living in these last days. I saw God do an amazing thing this last week in these children. And if he does it in the children, he'll do it in all of us. We need to have that same heart, just like these babies come in here. They were coming in, and they were ready every night. And they were like, all right, Jesus, bring it. And I was like, oh, amen, right? So, all right, um, well, with that, let's bow our heads and let's pray, and uh, we'll, we'll get into our study here this morning. Father, we thank you again. Thank you, Lord, that you have knit such a beautiful family together here, Lord. I, I reflected just even this week, Lord, on all you've done, and all you've done even just this last year, year and a half here in this building, Lord God, and just how amazing and powerful and loving you are, how you've touched all of our hearts, Lord, You've drawn us and discipled us. You've matured each and every one of us. And it's been by your word and by the company of one to another coming together and being there to bear each other's burdens. God, thank you that you're faithful. Thank you that you, Lord, uh, are always ready. And when we show up, Lord, uh, we get our, uh, just our socks blessed off. Lord, I pray you do that this morning here as we begin to talk about well, Lord, uh, the principles of marriage and what a healthy marriage looks like and then also the issues with sexual morality that, um, Lord, is also pervasive in the church. God, I pray you protect this church, God, the body of Christ here from these uh, issues, Lord. I pray you'd wash all of our minds here this morning, God. I pray you strengthen the marriages. I pray you strengthen the widows. I pray you strengthen the singles, the unmarried, God. And, Lord, I pray our lives... Lord, are these living epistles that we look just like what we read in the Word of God? Because you in us, Lord, and our willingness to surrender and, and sacrifice, God, is all worth it to live as you've called us. More is caught than taught, and we want it all, Jesus, because you want all of us. Lord, you, you've made it so simple. We love you, and you love us, and that is a good thing, and nothing needs to change. Transform us here this morning, Jesus. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed. Amen. Well, I'm going to go through. If you don't have some paper, grab some paper in the back if you want, some study notes, pen. I'm going to go through in the margin of your Bible. I'm going to do a little bit of word study in the Greek here this morning. As we go through this, many of you read 1 Corinthians 7. I've also gone through 1 Corinthians 7 if I do marital counseling and I have folks come in. I'll you know, use this of one, in, one of many passages that I'll go through. But it's also important when we look at the words, every single word that God has inspired matters. It's not coincidental. It's not a happenstance. God's not grammatically challenged. Every single word that's here belongs here, and it has a purpose here. And if we understand what a healthy marriage looks like, we need to really study this in detail. So we're going to probably go through nine verses this morning. We're not going to get very far as far as nine verses. But what's packed in these nine verses uh, is probably about six pages worth of notes, okay? So there's a lot here. So if you don't have a pen, look at a, the pen in one of the seats in front. Take notes, study this, write it in the tablet of your heart, and trust that the Holy Spirit will seal it there for you, okay? Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good, you can circle that, for a man not to touch, circle that, a woman, so Paul opens up, and it says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me. So, so clearly there's some type of letter being written here, or question being asked to Pastor Paul. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, if you just read this out of context, you would start to say, Well, wow, we, had a, we got a problem today. Celibate, you know, celibacy for us, right? Everyone, you know, everyone would be describing this. But, but kalos is the word here, good. And that means expedient, profitable, or wholesome. And that last one's very important. It is wholesome. It is good. It is expedient. It is profitable, wholesome. Think about what wholesome means. Kalos. To touch, right? Hoptomi or hoptomi. 
Some just say hapto. It's, it's up to you how you want to pronounce it or conjugate it in the Greek. But it means carnal intercourse with a woman or cohabitation. It actually doesn't, when we would think of touch, I, you might think of the physical aspect of, of just, you know, touching the skin. You know, this, this implies far more than that. Again, hapto means, it, it describes really carnal intercourse with a woman or cohabitation, living with someone outside of marriage, right? It, it connotes both. It actually means both. And, and he's being very direct with this um, because he's dealing with a question. It says, you wrote me. You wrote me. Somebody had asked Pastor Paul here a question, and and we don't know maybe the exact question, but something had to do with the fact of, should Christians really be engaging in sexual intimacy? You know, I don't want to put words, and I don't want to misrepresent Scripture, but something like that had to be the question for Paul to respond, saying, well, it's, it's good for a man not to have carnal intercourse with a woman or cohabitate with a woman outside, and he's going to build this outside of marriage. And that's what he's going to say. So yes, because what were they struggling with? Do you remember back in chapter 5? Uh, a son having sexual relations with his father's wife, sexual morality. So, so in context, context is king in, in scripture and hermeneutics. Building on this, this is what we're talking about. So he's saying, yes, this is a problem because there was rampant, I mean rampant sexual indulgence going on in Corinth. You know, uh, remember this is, this is Sin City and it was culturally acceptable to indulge in the flesh in any capacity, in any capacity. Right? I mean, temple prostitutes, um, it was thought of as a legitimate enterprise. Just, just to get our minds around that, right? No negative moral distaste or corruption. It, it, just think about that for a minute. So from the writing of this verse in Corinth, it, it reads like, you know, maybe they, maybe they were suggesting complete celibacy or something along that. You know, a man not to touch a woman. They, they probably figured maybe that it was sexual morality, uh, and they were so afraid because of, of the exhortation maybe with danger that they thought if they just abstained from sex altogether, um, even in marriage, maybe somehow that would be holy or righteous. Now, now this concept isn't foreign, and, and we've seen it repeated in religions throughout the ages, right? It, it, you go back and study early church history or church history in general, you'll see there are times where this continues to pop up. You may know, know it more as the term of asceticism. Um, if you've heard that, if you've not heard of asceticism, it's that idea, and, and early on, you can go back all the way to the time of uh, Christ, even before Christ, as he dealt with the legalism of that day, but, but right after, there were monasteries set up, and monks, and things like that, and they would do what? They'd go and throw themselves in a fire, in some way, taking on uh, some type of physical pain, so that they could be more like Christ. Now, I, I want to, you know, there's nothing in Scripture that ever tells you to do that. Certainly, we know that's not scriptural. And it's no different. Uh, There's nothing in scripture that says that a married man and a married woman should not have sexual intimacy. That, that, that there's a good reason for that. Is actually, we're going to go on. We're going we're to tell, it's actually protection that they do, that they would engage in this. But he wants to make it clear that if you're not married, there should be no cohabitation and there should be no sexual indulgence unless you are married. And, and that's God's design. That's God's rule here. And, you know, Pastor Paul addresses the question because he's going to build on it in verse 2 with pornea, right? Or pornea, depending on how you want to pronounce it, which is the sexual immorality going on with the church. Look at verse 2. Nevertheless, so he says, nevertheless, but because, if I can say it that way, okay, of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. If you see that, the first word is sexual immorality. Circle that. We're going to go through that. His own, notice that with me, his own wife, and let each woman have his own husband. A couple things going on here that Pastor Paul's showing us that, that should be sort of, um, we should be aware of, matter of fact about the word pornea, what is that word? Again, it's a broad umbrella. It's an umbrella of a term within the Greek. Uh, it, it has to, to deal or covers sexual intercourse outside of marriage. It connotes or has to do with adultery, fornication, 
homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals. I, I say this because it's important. It is an umbrella term that covers a whole lot of things when you think of sexual immorality, okay? And so he's saying that this is the problem, right? He says, but because of the sexual immorality, because of what's going on in the carnality of man's heart, what they're doing, Paul tells them, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Okay, this is striking. This is striking in the first century. I mean, this, this, this had to raise eyebrows. This had to, I mean, people probably got up and walked out. Men, a lot of men probably got up and walked out of church that day when they heard that. I mean, there's a whole lot going on within this passage. First of all, the one thing I want us to note, own man should have his own wife, right? First thing. And what? A woman should have her own husband. We don't see a gender or an indifference to marriage. One man, one woman for life is what we see God has ordained, Genesis, right? That's the first thing. So the gender debate is settled there, right in scripture here. There's nothing in Scripture that allows for a homosexual or lesbian relationship. But, but Paul does something else here. One man, and we're going to build on this as we continue in chapters, or verses 3 and 4, he's going to turn around and say, own or equal. What does he say? He's talking about equality here. Now, do you remember when Jesus Christ came? Jesus had disciples that were women as well, right? You, you do know that. Well, at that time, men and women were not thought of to be equal in some capacity within much of the Jewish faith or much of the Roman Jewish cultural area. If you go even into Jerusalem today, Israel today, there's still some of that remaining. You can talk to people that have been over there that come back. There is a difference, and it wasn't even into the United States of America, you know, that we went through women's suffrage and a lot of different movements that finally women had the right to vote. And then women also had the ability to be treated equally, right? And the same thing we saw with race and, and, and honestly, all division and all in an attempt to belittle someone. Never God's design. God created man and women and they are equal because they're in the image of God. Nobody can change that. Nobody can try to say, well, you know, the scriptures say at times women are the, the weaker vessel. Yeah, but is that talking about equality of worth in God's eyes? Or is that saying because of the emotional sensitivity, there's a protection that needs to be there, a covering, right? That gets twisted by those that want to be Nicolaitans. Jesus says, I hate the Nicolaitans. Those are people that want to lord over other people. You know, so he's very clear here. What are, what are we seeing? He says, you got to have your own husband and your own wife. And, and Paul's writing this because the sexual morality was, was culturally accepted and practiced in Corinth. And they began to follow their own lusts. I mean, the church began to look like the culture in the world. There was, there was no distinction. It was, it was what was practiced. And, and, and they just said, well, what's wrong with this, Paul? What's wrong with this, Pastor? Why, why are we supposed to be different and set apart? Why, why are we holy that way and the world can do whatever they want? And, and it's going to come right down to marriage because this was not God's plan for intimacy. His, his concept of the physical, spiritual application that he's given us for one man and one woman, they become what? One flesh. Something spiritual happens there that we don't always see. You know, we try to use uh, the analogy of the threefold cord, right? We, we talk about that in Ecclesiastes, the threefold cord, right? That's not easily broken. And we, we tie that together a lot of times at a marriage ceremony, I'll do that. But do we really understand that, yes, Jesus is the center of that marriage and that the cord's being wrapped around, but you still have the three cords, but what are you doing? You're making them kind of together one? What we read is one flesh, Something is happening where we're not taking three and becoming one. It's one. There, there's not three separate strands that can be undone. Do, do you see that? Do you see that application? It's one flesh. So his own, her own. It also speaks, like I said, to the equality and, and the selflessness in a marriage that's required in a godly marriage. God created man and woman. And in Genesis chapter th uh, 1, verse 31, he said it was what? very good. Day six, right? He said, man, it was very good. So I want to be clear here because this is important. Again, this can lead to a legalism or asceticism here. If we're not clear, God is not saying that sexual desire is bad. 
After all, who put sexual desire in man's heart for intimacy with his own wife? God did. And it was even before, or let me ask you, was it before the fall? Was it precurse? Yes, of course it was. Because Adam was in the garden, wasn't he? And as I just read to you in Genesis 131, it was all very good. Eve came along, one that was like him, that would be taken from his side, his rib that way, that would be one together in a one flesh relationship of intimacy before God spiritually. And they would procreate and have children. And not just for procreation, but also for sexual intimacy, for in pleasure and enjoyment within their marriage. I mean, otherwise, as I said, I think it was last Sunday, you and I wouldn't be here. Right? Paul would have been off fishing somewhere, and he would have been off, you know, tilling a garden somewhere. And the two went, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Hey, how you doing? You know? Um, but no. Nobody had to come to Adam and, and, and really, I mean, Adam already knew because God had said already be fruitful. But nobody had to come to Adam and say, Adam, you need to have a desire for your wife sexually. That, that wasn't something that had, to, that had to be programmed into Adam. It was already there. It was already in the pre-programming. Okay? God had put that in because it was desirable and it was good. There was nothing wrong with it. That desire, men, that you have for your wives and wives for your husband, that is natural and good and it's of the Lord and it's wonderful that way. This is precursor. Sexual machine, like I said, it's, it's also for pleasure. Married couples to enjoy one another. The Bible says when you're married, you become one flesh. But for those that are not married, what is to happen? You are to be of abstinence. You are to do that. Now, I, I want to also be clear because I understand some may not be able to gauge in, you know, married couples in sexual intimacy, right? Whether it's due to disease or, or, or disability. And I want you to think about everything that we know about Jesus. Everything that we know about God. I want you to think about this for a minute. His gracious character. You know, I'm certain that God provides a very special love within a marriage that tr transcends the physical act of, of sexual intimacy for those that aren't able to, whether it's, like I said, from a disease or from, you know, some type of disability and they're not able to, I have no doubt that God fills them and, and gives them such a love one to another that it transcends the physical. It transcends it. You know, I, I, I know our God is good and he would do that. So please don't, as we read this, because it's going to be a, almost a command where we're to do these things if we're married. But if we can't because we, we don't have the ability, that's not sin in your marriage. That's not sin in your marriage. And I just want to go ahead because I know how the enemy works. And he likes to, he likes to turn around and twist scripture. And, I, and there's, we're not going to let him take an inch. We're not going to let him take an inch. That's not what this is saying here. Look at verse 3. Let the husband render, isn't that an interesting word? Circle that. To his wife, the affection due. Circle affection and circle due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. Once again, we see the equality. What is given to the man is also given to the woman, just as we read in verse 2. An equality there, not one to the other that way. Now, render, right? Apodidomy, right? That's the word apodidomy. It's to pay off or discharge, which is due in a similar context to sort of paying a debt. It's, it's what it's expected. It's what's due. He says, you're to epididymy or epididymy. You're to render. You're to discharge. You're to give. You're to pay what is due. This is expected. This isn't something that is uh, uh, not expected. It's expected. Now, he says, do a, a philo, right? That's the word in the Greek, a philo, right? So what is this? It's a goodwill duty. It's a goodwill do. It's, it's doing something out of goodwill in one's heart to do this. This is what is due. So as we look at verse 3, let a husband pay or discharge or give to his wife, right? That what is due, this goodwill. But we also see another word, eunoia. Do you see that there? Eunoia. What is that word, eunoia? Affection. Do you see that? What does that mean? That connotes a benevolence. I want you to think of what a benevolence is, right? We, we have benevolence at the church. For those within the church that we, we send out 
or, or for those that are outside of the church that have a need in a, in a moment, we, we, we have benevolence, right? We have a benevolence fund. We have a benevolence uh, prayer time. We have benevolence, um, well, this is that word. It means goodwill kindness. This week, we had the children going through the fruit of the Spirit. What is one of the fruits of the Spirit? Well, kindness in particular, right? That's what we're talking about. Goodwill and kindness, benevolence. So what he's saying here is you are to pay off or discharge what is due. This is goodwill in benevolence, in kindness. What is due? A philo, right? Paul is telling us that a man and a woman, very important here, both are listed in this, need to demonstrate goodwill and kindness toward their spouses. It's not an elective. It's a mandatory course. This is not an elective. I want you to think about marriages now. I want you to think about your marriage. Are you intentional on this? Have you read this? Have you understood these words that God, is there an intentionalness to this? Right? Why do you think Paul's bringing this, light in the, you know, bringing this up in the light of sexual intimacy? Because he knows the carnality of the heart, God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knows that some women think nothing of being preoccupied all day, and then they get into the bedroom at night, and what happens? How you doing? Are you there? Hey, right? You, 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 I think you get it, my point, right? We have young people in here. You get the point, right? All day, they've been ignored, whether it's the husband or the wife, all day. And then all of a sudden, they have that time where they're gonna be seeking sexual intimacy, and it's like, hey, how are you doing? And like a microwave, it just, you turn on, right? That's, that's what happens here. No, he knows the carnality of heart. He knows how we behave. He knows how men and women think. Notice that I'm saying men and women. There was a time that maybe we would just would have thought of men, right? That men would have been, but I, but I can tell you in marriages today, this is not just men. It's men and women in the days we're living. It, it can be either or. And some of that has to do with the fact that we have men and women working in the workplace and a lot of things that affect that, Okay. But what's he, what's he drawing the attention to? Again, all day showing no affection. That was that word again. Eunoia, right? And then, you know, I know men and women are different, but, but and I don't want to stereotype a gender, but because you do what you do in your marriage, but at the end of the day, the reality is they get to this point and there's no affection. I think there's books written on this. I mean, you can read books about this where, you know, I, I can tell you um, it just on a personal level, when Lisa and I uh, met, you know, we were friends, and I can remember uh, she was in the Bronx, and I was in school in New Rochelle, New York, and we met at college. And after we became friends, I would go to her house. You know, she was Italian, well, I'm Italian, we grew up that way. And, uh, you know, I'd be working, I'd be going to school all day, and then I'd work all night to pay for, for school, okay? So I, I work sometimes like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and then I'd go home and sleep for a few hours, 7 o'clock, be up back at classes, right? And I did this for, for two and a half years. Well, you know, sometimes you get a little bit tired. You know, I'd go home, I'd sleep, you know, try to catch cat naps during the day, different places on campus, find a tree and just go to sleep, right? Well, you know, Lisa and I became friends. And as I was kind of uh, going and we would, I'd pay a visit, we'd go over there. Her mom was so gracious, she'd make, you know, food or pasta because, you know, I was pretty much eating, you know, rice every day or macaroni and cheese or whatever I could get at the mobile gas station that was close. I didn't have a lot of money, so whatever I could get. And uh, I remember going over to the house and, um, Often, I, I would fall asleep on her, okay? And some of you are like, ladies, you're like, ah, you bum. No. You know, it was, <laughs> it was, <laughs> I want to explain what was going on because I also think there's other guys out there that are like this too, and that's why I'm bringing it up. Because I was always on guard. You know, I was constantly going. I was constantly moving, and I was always on guard. I had to be away. And I would get with Lisa, and we would sit down, and she'd put on a movie or, you know, music or something like that. And I can just remember, you know, probably no other time in my life that I can explain this. I can remember sitting down and feeling like I was home. Do you understand what I mean like that when I say that? Like, I just, I could let go. I could lean on her shoulder, which eventually allowed me to fall in her lap. And then next thing you know, 30 minutes later, I'm out. And we were just friends. And I, I could just, I wouldn't say maybe a word to her. But just being in her presence, it filled me. It was everything to me. I didn't utter a word. Now, eventually, uh, you know, our friendship turned into more. We got married. 
And I thought, well, nothing's going to change, right? I mean, after all, it was great. I just got together. We didn't really have to talk. Um, you know, I'd go to work. I'd come home. And it's not going to change. It's just the same thing. And it's okay that I just fall asleep, right? Because I worked all day. I come home. She'd make this lovely dinner. I'd sit down. She'd decorate the little plate. You know, you got to remember, you know, we were young. And uh, you all were there at one time, maybe. And so she's trying to put little chicken nuggets around in a circle and rice in the middle, like with a thing, like we saw on the TV, you know, so thing and so it's just like you know microwave dinner that we made in 10 minutes that she made look like amazing like it was a five star or five course meal and so she'd set it down I'd sit there I'd eat and she would start telling me about her day and go off right I'd go right I because I was home and I felt comfortable and I was working all day and my guard was up and and then you know later on that evening we would, you know, be together, and we were going to engage in sexual intimacy. And um, she's like, you're awake now, huh? She's like, I'm tired. All this work all day, and I bore you. And, uh, you know, she, she was never hurtful. But, but the reality was I had to learn what it was that my wife and I were different. I'm more like a, a fast food restaurant, right? You know, I don't know I'm always hungry. When I realize I'm hungry, I engage in hunger. I'm not hungry anymore. I'm on to the next thing, all right? Some, some of us are like this, no, men and women. Some are, some are like this. Others are, are, are more like, uh, I think you get the analogy in that. The others were, were, you know, other people are like, you know, my wife were, oh, it, you know, this was proper planning and preparation. We, we would go out to a nice dinner, and there would be really fancy stuff like candles and like silverware and everything would have its nice place. And, you know, there'd be a whole pomp and circumstance, you know, I, I, you know, I, just everything had to be so. And, you know, we'd sit down, we'd have a nice meal, we would talk for hours, like just really engage in, in deep conversation. I would listen, I would actively talk, men pay attention, I would actively engage and, uh, and, and we'd have those conversations. And then afterwards, you know, we would go back home and, and, you know, and one thing would lead to another. And, you know, the Lord was before us. And it was all throughout the whole day there was this attention given and time and love. And, and, and so my, my wife is much more like that. You know, that's always been the way Lisa is. And it's beautiful. And I had to learn that, that each of us are different. And sometimes that's different between you know, husband and wife, and however that works in your marriage is, you know, I don't want to know. That's between you all. But, but the reality is it's important that, that we see this affection, this do, render, these things that God, God's telling us that we ought to be invested because he knows the hearts, right? He knows these things, and, and we, need to be, we need to be careful that we're, we're engaging in that, that it shouldn't be just like a, hello. Hi, how are you today? Good to see you. I'm glad you are, could show up and uh, thanks that we could be together at this time. And, you know, you know it should be intimacy, right? And, and some of you, you know, because, you know, I'm here and I'm, I'm kind of outgoing with you all and I'm talking. Many of you don't know, you know, and Lisa will tell you, I'm actually more introverted on a personal level. My, I don't, I don't find, maybe some of you guys are the same way. You're working all day and you're out around people and you have to talk to other people. But the way you recharge is going home and just being with the Lord in your word. That's, to me, oh, what a beautiful date night, you know, going and just my wife and we could drive out. We could get a little something to eat quick, but then we can walk around Children's Lake. We can open our Bibles. We can read. And it's just her and I, and it's just beautiful. Very simple. That's a beautiful daytime night for me. Or, or, or something like just opening my Bible with just the Lord and being able to be encouraged. That really charges me. That fills me, right? Some people want to be around other people, right? That, that's not, you know, everybody, I'm sharing this. I don't want to talk about you. I counsel some of you. So I'm purposely not going out this way. I'm coming this way. I know that's what fills me. That's what charges me. So it's okay that we're all different that way. We just need to have that commonality that we give that affection, that we are selfless in our marriage one to another. That's what I believe we're, we're learning here, you know, that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit that maybe some guys or gals can relate to this. We need to render the affection due to our spouses, and it's important uh, in a marriage-centered 
uh, on Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority, circle that, that's a kind of important word, over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So, exousizo, right? That's the word exousizo in the Greek here that we see for authority. It's speaking to a power. To have a full and entire authority over the body. To hold one's body subject to one's will. But the important thing here in the Greek is this is passive. This is passive in the way that it's conjugated. Which means that this is something that requires a willingness of the wife or the husband. That, the, that, the, that it really has to do with a submission. Much like we would submit to Christ, a husband is to submit to her wife. A husband is to submit to his wife. His wife to submit to his hu- to her husband. That way, it's a willingness. Why do I bring that up? Because this is not describing men or women forcing each other. This describes a desire, a response, a willingness to meet that desire. Right? It, it describes really what a selfless marriage. Most of the problems in marriage have to do with self, either selfish or self. Lists, right? They're going to be one of the to- one of the other. Are you with me? It's 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 going to come down to that in one spouse or the other. That's what you're going to see. And and I think this is important because God's giving us these points. I hope you're taking notes on this. That one, He tells us it's an it's an investment of affection in your spouse, number one, right? And number two, it's selfless submission to each other. These are the two building blocks that God is giving us for a holy and righteous marriage. You're starting to get a clear picture of what the Holy Spirit's doing here and teaching about the marriage relationship. Um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture spiritually of our relationship with Jesus Christ when you think about it, right? First, we should desire to spend time with Jesus, you know, are we giving him his affection? You know, our affection due or his affection due? Are we doing that with Christ? Or is it a kind of just we pass? Lord, how you doing? Good to love you. Thanks for the food. Amen. Right? Are we giving that affection? He's teaching us. He's teaching us. It's relationship. Second, again, we should understand that Jesus wants every part of our heart. That means that we must surrender and submit selfishly, selflessly. Do you see that? We, we learn by doing that with our partners that we're married to, our husbands or our wives, right? But, but ultimately, are we not to do that to Christ? If you can't do it with someone you can see, touch, smell, how do you do it to the invisible God? It's all preparation. It's, it's all the work of the heart here, right? It, it's a beautiful picture. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. So back to our passage, looking at this, one, we see also an equality in relationship that both husband and wife have to submit to each other. And did you know that the time this would have been written, it was in, again, direct opposition to the cultural system uh, of men and women at that time. A woman was to be seen and not heard. Like I said, I can't imagine when this was first shared, the men in that church, what? What? And probably wanted to get up and walk away. And, and yet was Christ not at the center of that going, this is what I've designed. This is what my father designed as well. One man, one woman in the image of God, equality. And at the time, again, this would have been countercultural. So what's that tell us? What needs to change? Is it we that change to meet the culture? Or does the culture change? through us, through the transformation and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. You see, this is important here. We have to answer that question. It's, it's important. Did the ends ever justify the means, the way to do it? It's never been about gender. It's always been about serving each other and glorifying God. Husband and wife living uh, a life surrendered to Christ, worshiping him and obeying his commandments and statutes. Look at verse 5 here. Do not deprive, now we're introduced to another word, circle that. Do not deprive one another except with a consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A bunch of things going on here. He's exhorting us and now we're getting to the why. He's been bringing this up, but now it's here's why this is important for married couples to be having sexual intimacy. Because if you don't, one or the other, again, 
minus any reason of one spouse not being able to, whether it's disease or, you know, um, some type of medical condition or something like that, right? That, that's clearly understandable. That's not what, what God's talking about here. He's saying, you know, beside that, he's saying that this is important, that this is important, right? The word deprive is apostoreo. It's apostoreo in the Greek. It means to defraud. It's a very, we read it in the English, deprive. I think that's really watered down. I think that's a very poor translation, to be honest with you, in the English compared to the Greek. It means to defraud. It means to keep back. It means to rob. Does deprive sound like you're robbing somebody? No, I think rob is a lot stronger. To defraud or to commit fraud is a lot stronger. And that's what the original language says. It's the idea of withholding oneself from another, that you are committing fraud within your marriage by doing so. Again, without medical or issues like that. In a marriage, if a woman or a man withholds himself from another due to manipulation, and I say that very carefully because often there are times when a woman or a man will use sexual relations to get something they want. I know this is shocking to all of you here, but the reality is it happens in marriages, all right? We need to talk about it. That's one thing that happens, manipulation. What's the other thing? Retaliation. What's that mean? You didn't want to talk to me all day. You didn't, you know, behave this way. You didn't, I don't feel loved. I don't, you know, and therefore I will withdraw myself from you. What does this do? This just makes it worse and worse and worse. Sometimes the best thing you can have when there's just a, a flat-out argument or disagreement is to give it over to Christ and then come together, husband and wife, and, and allow the Lord just to heal that. Sometimes, you know, the, the process of engaging in sexual intimacy can actually heal that within your You're coming together. You know, one husband, one wife like that as God had described and designed here. So, Again, if a, if a man or a woman withholds himself, whether it's due to manipulation or retaliation or other reason, it's sin. And it's considered fraud or robbery. That's what we read here. And, and I wish, if you keep reading on, because he said here in, uh, in verse 5, he says, unless they, they give themselves over to fasting and prayer, what are those? Those are spiritual applications or spiritual reasons, right? I wish the reason couples today withheld themselves uh, from each other was due to, um, to something like that, to something that was spiritual, right? But more than likely, um, it has nothing to do with that. It, it often has to do with manipulation or getting what they want or retaliation or being somehow they're undervalued. We're told here that married couples should be intimate and they... And if they're not, they run the risk of being tempted by Satan due to what? Now we have another gift of the, uh, uh, or another um, fruit of the Holy Spirit. What is that one? Self-control now. All right, self-control, right? We see another fruit. Are you starting to see this? That even in our marriage, there's fruits of the Spirit that can be demonstrated. Again, coming off Vacation Bible uh, Week here. We just went through these all with the children, obviously not in this context, but we went through these all with the children. So this is, this is, this is really important. He says, look, if you don't do this, you will be tempted by Satan, and, and, and it's because of your lack of self-control, right? Galatians chapter 5. God has placed the desire for sexual intimacy pre-fall into the hearts and bodies of humanity. So to practice abstinence without an underlying medical reason is to deny God's design for sexual intimacy in marriage. Again, I know that there are some that are no longer able to do this today, um, but that's not what the Holy Spirit's talking about here. It's not, let, it's not good. If you love your spouse, it's not good to let a husband or wife burn with lust or passion. Why do I use the term not, uh, burn? Look at verse 9. We're going to get there in a minute. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This idea of burn in the Greek is a fire, like stoking a fire, and the flames come higher and higher and higher. He says that's what happens unless you have an agreement that you will withhold for a period of time due to fasting and prayer, which are what? Spiritual applications. You're putting the Lord first, and you have an agreeable time, you know, which I pray much of the church would do. 
I pray much of the church would do. They'd have this time of fasting and prayer, right? We usually have our church fast where we have a week where we, we abstain, you know, from many of the foods and different things like that. We'll probably be doing it sometime in the, I think, February of this upcoming year. We're going to have our church fast again to be praying for our, the year going forward or maybe in the January time frame where we'll all be invited to partake. And then we, we break that fast together on a Friday where we all come in and we break it with a little soup that way or something light, broth. But, but he's talking about this from an sexual intimacy perspective. He says that when you withhold yourself, when your spouse, what's happening is that it's like, it's like a flame is being stoked and the devil's going to take advantage of that and he's going to salt it. It's to make it higher and higher to cause him to do what? To try to cause him to lose self-control. You see, this is very interesting here. I, I find this very interesting because... The reason I knew I was supposed to be married, for example, is I knew that God didn't give me the gift of celibacy. Some of you, what do you mean gift? It's a gift of God. Look at verse 7. We're going to read that in a little bit. But it's a gift of God. It says it's a gift from God. There are certain men and women that have been given that gift from God of celibacy, just like there's men and women that have given a gift from God of marriage. It's from the Lord. It's not something that I determine, right? We read in the Bible that there were some that became eunuchs because they what? They, they themselves did that operation. Some from God, right? That God had ordained that they would be given that gift. So we see an example of self-will and an example of will from the Father. Which one is it? I knew early on, you know, when I was in college, I knew that I had been given the gift of marriage, right? That, that that's what the Lord had had for me. Maybe some of you here know that that was a gift you were given or have given. Maybe some widows or some singles here, you're still determining in the season you're in, has God given you a gift of marriage? Has God given you a gift of celibacy and singleness, because he can do that. A lot of times, um, and Paul's going to exhort this as we build on in the rest of this chapter, uh, not today, but as we, he's going to turn his attention then to the singles and to the widows. And he's going to begin saying, hey, I wish you were all, actually he's going to do, do this in this passage here, I wish you were all like me. Because he's going to say being window, a widow or being single has some advantage. And that you're not divided. You're not divided. You're able to focus entirely on Christ. Right? So certainly he, he's pointing that out because he says, you know, husbands, if you have a wife and you're, you're, you're caring about your wife, does that mean he's not encouraging marriage? Of course not. He's not saying that. He's saying, but pray about it. Pray about it before you jump into something because you may feel lonely or whatever. He's saying, no, you make sure the Lord is showing you that because he has giving the gifting and it's a gift from God. That's, that's what we're learning here. Now, I knew God was not giving me the gift of, of celibacy. I, I believe when religion forces, there are religions that forces abstinence on groups of men and women to stay celibate, right? Contrary to God's gifting, it leads to problems we hear about today, right? Think about it. Over the years, I won't mention denominations or religions. You know who they are, where there's issues of sexual morality, whether it's with children or other things like that, because they've been forced into an asceticism that wasn't gifted from God, and when it's not gifted from God like that, it leads to the same thing that we're dealing with in Corinth, which is sexual immorality. Because they're trying to live something out that wasn't given them. They weren't gifted for that. That's, that's the problem. Verse 6, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. God certainly will permit a married couple to abstain for sexual relations for a short time for the sake of what? He gave two provisions here fasting and prayer. It was spiritual, right? But if the concession is used, it's to be only for a time. And then the husband and wife must come together again in sexual intimacy, right? God doesn't ever give the command or recommend abstaining from sex and marriage, but if it's for a specific spiritual reason, that's what we see here. And, and if you think about it, I want, I want you to think about Satan's strategy here, okay? Satan is more than happy when it comes to sex, to do everything to either encourage sex outside of marriage, right, through temptation, sex outside of marriage, or to discourage sex within marriage. He, that's his, his extreme. He's, he's more than content at doing that. For married couples, adultery. That's the, the lust or the temptation. For those that are also married, to do what? To turn around and withhold within your 
you know, one flesh that God has given you. Singles, the same thing. He will often tempt you with sex outside of marriage, fornication, which is sin, right? Wrong. Or he'll turn around and do and say, you, you'll never get married. You know, you're not, it's not for you, you know. If you burn or have a fire in you of sexual desire, then you have not been given the gift or it looks like you, you would sort of discern you and the Lord would have to work that out. But it would seem to me that you have not been given that gifting of celibacy. Okay, do you, do you understand? That means that now you're waiting on God for that right fit of that spouse that he will bring you. Wait on the Lord. Don't settle for a second best or third best. Verse 7, for I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter and another in that. So, you know, myself, Paul, wait a minute. This should, should kind of conjure some thoughts up here. First of all, Scripture doesn't specifically state this, but Paul, we believe, was a member of the Sanhedrin. Acts chapter 26, verse 10. The Greek word for Sanhedrin is what? An assembly or a council. They were required to be married. And it seems like Saul sat on a Jewish ruling council. That's what we read in Acts chapter 26, verse 10. As a matter of fact, we read, he said he gave his voice against them. Now, the Sanhedrin was the supreme court of that day or supreme council in the Jewish world. It, it functioned as a legislative body. And it consisted of 71 men. There was also a smaller Sanhedrin that consisted of 23 men, just in case you, free information. But in Paul's day, it seems that based on verse 8 here, if we look here, it says, but I say to the unmarried uh, in, in the windows, it's good for the rain, even as I am. It seems that Paul himself is applying that he's unmarried here. Okay, that's a, So we don't know, you know what happened, but at the writing of this epistle, I think it's possible to come to the conclusion that Paul's no longer married or he's a widower. We, we just don't know which one. In Paul's day, Jews considered marriage a duty, okay? This is important. By the time a man would reach the age of 20 years, he was considered, he was to be married. Otherwise, because of tradition in the Jewish uh, religion, if I can say it that way, or belief, it, it was considered um, a sin, Unmarried men were often considered excluded from heaven and not real men at all. This isn't scriptural. This was something that took on as tradition. Okay? So what happened to Paul's wife? Well, the scriptures are silent, right? If the scriptures are silent, we should be. We really don't know. But we learn here that each man and woman is given a gift from God regarding marriage or singleness. That's what we see here. Each one has his own gift from God. And, and I think in some ways, it's almost as the Holy Spirit went before Paul. Maybe Jesus had given him revelation on this. I don't know. But it's awesome that he didn't impose it on anyone. There was no legalism here. You know, no one has to be celibate to serve God. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. You know, we, we just don't see that. The important thing is that we look at it and we understand it's a gifting from God. And either being gifted to what? Singleness or to marriage. That, that's what we read here. Therefore, no one should be second-guessing a desire of the opposite. If you're single and you desire to be married and you're wondering, Lord, you, should, you shouldn't second-guess God, right? If you're married and you're saying, boy, it would be good to be single again, you shouldn't be doing that. That's sin, right? That's sin. It's, it's going contrary to God. It's not finding that contentment in that. And I believe God puts these desires in our hearts. Why do I say that? Because... If God has put on your heart the desire for a spouse or a husband or wife, I believe God put that in your heart. And I don't think you should feel, you know, terrible or betrayed by that or, or uh, something contrary is a sin because of that. God has put that in your heart. He's given you that desire as long as it's from the Lord and not from self again and self-will, right? And, and conversely, right? I think that's what we hear um, that's what we see here. It's gifting. Otherwise, it leads to sexual morality, right? And, and the married must live faithfully with their spouse, and the unmarried must live celibate. Look at verse 8. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Paul encourages the single or the widows to stay unmarried. Now, we're going to pick up more on this in verse 25 next week or the week after as we get there. But the idea behind Paul's sentiments, I want you to think, remember I was saying 
that I believe, whether it was through revelation of Jesus Christ or through the Holy Spirit. I was thinking about this. You know, Paul, why would you encourage that? First of all, Paul would make concessions. He would say, I say, not I, right? Look at verse 10 as an example. Now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. But then in verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, he had gotten approval from God to, to share these things as a pastor. He'd, okay. But what, what we see here is we don't see anything like that in this language. Clearly, there was times where Paul was expressing what he believed was the, the right thing at that moment for that church, for what was going on. But that's not the context of verse 8 and 9, right? We, we don't see this. He says, but I say to the unmarried, as though he had gotten some kind of permission, um, and to the widows, it is good for them to remain as I am. Why would he write that? I want you to think about this for a minute. What was going on at the time of this? Well, Paul wrote this epistle from where? Ephesus. And it was roughly what? A.D. 54, sometime around then. Nero, well, some say 53 to 57, okay. The letter was written. Nero began his rule at what time? AD 54. So he had already come as emperor into office at the time Paul was writing this epistle. Some 10 years later, AD 64, Christian persecution was widespread through the East, widespread through the whole East. I want you to think about this. And I praise God that we have been so blessed, but I know our brothers and sisters, even in the East right now, are going through this kind of martyrdom. It's happening right now. 200,000 Christians every year are being martyred. This is real. It's not something because we're cozy and comfortable sitting in an air-conditioned building we can pretend doesn't happen or doesn't exist. But I believe God was protecting hearts and minds here. What do I mean? Well, as a husband, I know that it would be very difficult for me to watch my children murdered or my wife raped or murdered because she refused to deny Jesus Christ. It would be very difficult for me to demonstrate the fruit of the spirit of self-control at that moment. I speak honestly before you. I don't try to hide anything. Um, I believe Paul is saying to the widow or to the unmarried, especially as they're about to enter a persecution like never seen before and only will be seen worse than this in the great tribulation. And I believe before the great tribulation comes, I do believe there'll be a time after maybe a, a revival if the Lord does that, that we will have it turn back around where um, we started seeing it a few years ago, didn't we? We already started seeing some of that coming to our states in Texas. Pastors were now required to send in sermons, and they had to be checked by the magistrate or, or, or before they could be actually taught from the pulpit. You know, and if you were going to teach something contrary to that, you were to be arrested. You know, so I, I was already preparing my heart years ago for the fact that one day, that, and, and probably if administration changes or something should change, very likely in my, my life and very likely in my children's lifetime that they will see dad taken off to jail, you know, and, and or martyred. I mean, the reality is the Christian's the troublemaker today, right? That's, that's how the world sees us. And to think of my wife and my children, you know, I'd love to say that I can be incredibly strong in that moment and that, you know, within a twinkling of an eye, there was a, a early church writing, I'd encourage you, if you've never read... Um, Fox's Book of Martyrs, or if you've never read the early church fathers um, and the writings of the early church uh, ladies, um, Perpetua was one that caught my heart. And I'll share this with you as we close. It's something that I want and I hope sticks with you because it's something that uh, I've never gotten out of my mind as I read the account. There was a woman who was with child, and she was a Christian. And the at that time, they practiced, right around the same time we're talking about, they practiced the emperor's cult, which is what I believe, again, why I say there was direct revelation from Jesus Christ to Paul and the way he was telling some of these women stay unmarried or stay widowed in this case. Um, because what was happening is they were being taken from their homes and brought, and if you didn't bow down and worship the emperor as Lord, you were martyred. It, made, it basically meant that you had to deny Jesus Christ. And they would often ask you, are you a Christian? You need to deny Jesus. And if you wouldn't be willing to do that, 
they would burn you or kill you or what have you, or feed you because at the Colosseum they would gather together and they would feed you out for sport. And they would bring them and line the Christians up and they would walk through and they would open up and the lions and the animals would attack them and it was all for um, sport at that time. So here's Perpetua. And I, I, I will be as sensitive as I can because of some young people here. But she was married, her and her husband, and uh, they had child. And her parents came and visited her and said, Perpetua, why will you not deny Jesus? You are with child. You know, she has the baby. Baby comes out. Baby needs to obviously nurse. So the parents would make the trips back and forth. They would take the child and then come back and nurse every three hours or so hours like that because she was not allowed to keep the child with her, but they did allow her to have the child. And now as she's with child, they said, Perpetual, will you not for the sake of your child deny Jesus? And she says, I can't. I can't deny my Lord and Savior. But for the sake of your child, who will nurse the child? Who will care? And so what happened was is the Roman official said, if you, today is your last day, if you will not come out and you will not deny Christ, today you and your husband will perish and will be thrown into the Colosseum. Her father begged her. Her father looked at her crying, the mother crying and weeping, begging her, please just say what they want you to say. It doesn't matter. And she said, no, it does matter. Jesus said, if you deny me, I will deny you before my father in heaven. But if you confess me, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. It does matter. And so she turned around. That's Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. So she turns around, and what does she do? She says, take the child. I must go. As they bring her out, right before, they're allowed a time where they kind of uh, go into like an outer cell. They go from the main cell where all the other prisoners are and they bring them to the cell right before they're going to release them to walk through these big doors and gates as they go into this massive Colosseum. As they bring her through, as she's coming with her husband, as they bring her to this other cell, he falls asleep and has a dream. And he's having a dream, a vision, and it's of Jacob's ladder. He saw angels coming up and down the ladder and that it was just a matter of time and that he too would be coming up that ladder and he would be with the Lord. And it was just a matter of time, and Perpetua would be with him. And, you know, it was all just a matter of time. He wakes up. He tells her the dream. He says, honey, are you ready? And she says, I'm ready. They begin to walk out. As they walk out, he's immediately slayed by one of the animals. They grab him, bite off his head, the whole thing, disembowel him right there in front of everybody. Everybody's cheering. Well, as a woman comes out there, you know that a woman that's with child or obviously in this case, delivered, she's still lactating. I'll say it that way because of, again, young people here this morning. She begins to lactate right there as they strip them naked, as they would have them run out like this. And so here she is, the most vulnerable, she's lactating. For a moment, the crowd paused because they realized she, she had just delivered a child. It had to be within the last few weeks, you know, because she's still lactating that way. And for a moment, they began saying, Wait a minute. But then the outrage of the crowds to turn around and destroy and to kill and to maim took over. And she was destroyed. She was, she was eaten. You know, she was disemboweled, the whole thing. And I think about that because I think, praise God, he went first. You know, that he didn't see that in some way as the one that provides the covering, but also how difficult for her to have seen her beloved suffer that way. But it was for an instant. Because when his eyes closed and her eyes closed, they opened and they see Jesus. And that's the strength of our faith. That's when it becomes real. Everything we read about here, this is all real. These are all accounts. These are all preparation. He begins by telling us the importance of living a holy and godly marriage to protect us. And I believe Paul in some ways was warning those, be careful, don't step out of the will of God and take things into your own hands. Look at verse nine, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better for them to marry than to burn with passion. Paul exhorts that a godly marriage is a refuge, a refuge from sexual immorality for the believer. No one should feel desperate or immature or unspiritual because they desire to get married. No because they're no longer going to burn with passion. 
That's that fire that would burn inside of us, that desire that God has placed in there if we're supposed to marry. But again, I caution here this morning. I caution the unmarried. I caution the single or the widow. Wait for God's best and never settle. If you do have a desire, wait. God will answer if it be his will. And he will bless you with a beautiful union of marriage that will transcend your wildest expectations. And if he has you, gifted you for singleness or to be that widow, realize you're already married to Christ and give him all of yourself and hold nothing back. We are living in these last days. We need to be about our father's business. I pray all of us walk out of here today a little wiser to the scripture, a little bit more thankful in our hearts for the days we're living that we get to believe and practice being a Christian the way we do in the comforts that we do, but that we realize there is a lost and dying world that doesn't know Christ, that we should not be about being comfortable, and that there's also many of our brothers and sisters that are paying with their lives right now for the namesake of Christ because God has called them to such a work as that. Let's pray for them. Let's encourage them. And let's be available ourselves to live out the walk. Someday, we don't know. It may come to a city near us. Will we be ready? Will you remember this teaching? Will you remember God's word and the strength that he's built into your marriage today? Have you put that at the center of your marriage, Christ? Are you still allowing the carnality and the the simplicity of doing of self-will or selfishness in your married? Are you really practicing selflessness, being selfless in our marriages? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for, Lord, your word. Once again, it is mighty and true cutting and piercing right through, Lord, the, uh, the marrow, right into the soft tissue of my heart, Lord, our hearts. Lord, that we would understand the idea that you have given us here, one man, one woman. We would understand the idea of demonstrating and showing affection, Lord. And that sexual intimacy is a gift from you for us, for our marriages. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the marriages of all the brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray, Lord, it would be a marriage that would be in light of eternity, not a marriage that would just be thought of of the temporal. It wouldn't be a marriage that was just about suiting each other's needs here, but truly, God, a marriage that will last in light of eternity a husband and a wife dedicated to bringing you glory and honor, serving you, putting you first, teaching their children to do the same and their grandchildren to do the same. And this would be well-pleasing to you as you've written in your word. Lord, I pray you tear down the strongholds today of anybody who's heard this, if there's any manipulation or retaliation. Lord, I don't know what you're gonna do in the hearts of your believers, but if there's anybody here this morning that, Lord, there's been shenanigans going on. I pray today, Lord, they lay it down. No more. They approach marriage as you've defined it, the way you've ordained it, the way you've commissioned it. And God, I thank you for the gifts you give us, some for celibacy, some for marriage. And I, again, pray strength for the widow and for the unmarried, that they would not burn with passion or a fire, Lord, that would consume them with lust and sexual morality. Please, Lord, holiness, purity, let us be protected from the sexual morality, Lord Jesus. And I pray, God, all this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed, amen.